0: Welcome back to Creative Pursuits. Alex Crow here. I am elated to be welcoming to the pod. Our first repeat guest, Daniel Hendler. He's a writer. You know him from the classic episode of this podcast, Netflix in the time of COVID-19. that was recorded back in the very first days of lockdown. Well, he is back, and we talk a little bit a little bit about the ride. That was working on the now Emmy Award winning TV show, Unorthodox. And then we get into, we get it, we get into it. We get into it. And we also tease a new podcast? A forthcoming podcast? Well, there's a lot in the works, and I'm very pleased to have Daniel here once again. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. Just hit the subscribe button, write us a review on Apple Podcasts, and please tell a friend about us. Tell a friend. Just one person would help a lot. So, this podcast is sponsored by Team People. If you are a creative or you work in a technical multimedia capacity of any kind, you should really check out Team People at teampeople.tv on the World Wide Web. They are placing people in all kinds of jobs, production and post production disciplines. Production has been and is continuing to ramp up, and Team People is tracking the trends. Going on in the production industries, their recruiters and project production managers are filling the jobs for clients from broadcast and cable networks to top agencies and production companies. So if you are looking for your next big thing, you need to check out their job board. Like I said, it's at teampeople.tv. Get to know their recruiters and their project managers. Additionally, if you yourself are the one running a creative services or an AV department and you're looking to supplement your team or gather a team of specialists for your next project, you should really get in touch with Team People. They build dynamic media teams. Once more, find them at teampeople.tv or all over social media. They're at Team TV on Twitter and Instagram. And of course, they are on LinkedIn. So with that said, Let's get to my conversation with Daniel Henle. Well, the last time that you and I spoke on this podcast, it was the very early days of lockdown. The podcast that we recorded was released on March 23rd and unorthodox the show that you were a writer and story editor on was released march 26th 2020 i mean a lot a lot has happened since then huh
1: Passover yeah more than one passover ago by the more than one passover calendar.
0: this is a seminal moment within the creative pursuits canon daniel i don't know if you realize this <laughs> you are you are our first repeat guest how how does it feel having that distinction on a prestigious podcast.
1: I expected it to, I mean, I don't know how that makes me sound, but I would have been offended if I wasn't. So.
0: I like that, I like that cocksuredness. You know, I think some, you know, I think a healthy dose of humility is also good, but it's also, you know, it's good to have self-esteem and to feel like you're worthy of being the first repeat guest on a prestigious podcast. Now that you've just chalked up this, uh, this, this accolade, but you know the show unorthodox which we spent most of the last podcast talking about also was able to to rack up a few accolades three emmy nominations uh amongst them
1: um, I correct you? it was eight emmy nominations
0: 8 8 emmy nominations pardon me i know the best best director best limited series and a uh, l- leading actress
1: yeah we got three of the the big ones. The Showtime ones, I guess you call them. I don't know. Uh, they're all primetime Emmys. I think right. they, were they? Yeah, I think they were all primetime Emmys. We got eight yeah. primetime Emmy nominations, but from the show, the ones they announced in the show, you're right, we had three of the big categories. We also had costumes, nomination. We had theme music, regular music, casting, and one more is Escaping Me.
0: Well, it's, but, it's yeah. huge. It's huge. And Maria Schrader oh, won for writing. best.
1: I'm sorry to interrupt. And and writing for Anna for the pilot. I have to. There you interrupt. go. So yeah, four. Don't... Yeah, we have four nominations in the in the in the show.
0: It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. Maria Schrader won for best director, and she was up against uh, Little Fires Everywhere. Lynn Shelton, uh, may she rest in peace. Normal People, which was another kind of, I feel like a show that kind of went uh, pandemic viral. Similar to Unorthodox. And then three episodes, Steph Green, Stephen Williams, and Nicole Castle from one of your favorite series are created by one of your favorite, I guess, showrunners, Damon Lindelof and Watchmen. So, I mean, you guys are really up there with some heavy hitters.
1: Yeah, you're right. It was basically against every episode of Watchmen, Little Bars right. of Normal People. And we, we got one. It's incredible. The last time we talked before it was released, I knew it was gonna be a good show. Everybody involved knew it was gonna be good, but you know, the way TV is released and so many shows come out, it seems every week there's another four or five. You never know if you're gonna make any noise or not. You never know if anyone's gonna watch it. I mean, some of my favorite shows the last few years, I felt like were only watched by a handful of people. Right. And it kind of, it certainly took me by surprise how it caught on. I have a number of theories as to why that is, okay. but um, it was nice. really amazing. And especially for, you know, it was really a European show. I think we're the first, I, I don't know if this is true. It's, we're certainly the first European Netflix show to be nominated for the, the American Emmys. Uh, there's also these the international Emmys, which is primarily for foreign language programs and, and shows that come out of Europe and the rest of the world. But we may be the first non Anglophile production to, to be nominated for a major Emmy.
0: It's really interesting. And Netflix and all the streamers are putting out so much content and a lot of it just goes so far under the radar. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about Joe Swanberg's Easy series. <laughs> uh, there's three yeah, seasons we of it. That,
1: yeah. yeah, but- that, show, amazing show. Yeah, terrific. The first season got a lot of press or, or some press and then a little the third bit, season which was yeah. also amazing. You were telling me this. I remember because I looked it up and you could barely find the third season reviewed and it was so good.
0: Yeah, there was maybe you could count on one hand how many reviews that got. So I guess you kind of talked about it, but I'm curious from someone who pretty much had a front row seat for this ride. Like, so going into it, what were your expectations and then I'm curious what your theories are. Was it just that people were stuck in their homes and they were looking for something to, to, grab, to grapple onto? I know the week before your series was released, Tiger King was released, and obviously that kind of went pandemic viral in its own right, uh, you know, a mere week before unorthodox. So what are your theories as to like how this thing caught fire?
1: My big theory on a the subconscious level is that the pandemic hitting when it did and forcing everyone to stay indoors, it was kind of like in Orthodox, There's the aruv wire, which is in used in in some ultra orthodox communities to basically like expand the the neighborhood, which allows people on the Sabbath to go outside and carry objects, and it extends the boundaries of the home. Right. And in the opening scene of Orthodox, the reason Esty can't leave with her bags is because the aruv wire has broken, so you're not allowed to go outside carrying anything. You're basically shut inside. And I kind of feel like the pandemic, it was like the a roof wire for the whole world kind of broke and we all had to be stuck inside. So maybe on some subconscious level that affected it. That's my, my little clever explanation. Really why I think it was is because it was short. It was four episodes, which right. a lot of TV now, you kind of get these, especially the streaming shows that are serialized. I kind of feel like they sometimes have this sag where you take a story. It's hard, it's hard to develop a plot that can stretch for eight or 10 hours. and usually even the best shows you get that feeling where it dips a little bit in the middle episodes and also it's a big investment now like because you're not just competing with all these other whatever 500 american shows and a thousand other international shows you're competing against everything that's ever been produced because of the library access that we have with the streaming services right and I don't know about you but sometimes you start something and it's an investment. You have to think about how much time am I going to invest? And when something's 10 episodes and you turn it on and the first episode is 105, you know, an hour 5 or 65 minutes whatever, it it feel, it can feel like a slog. And I think the fact that it was only four episodes, I think it was about 50 minutes an episode, it it was easy to get into and you really had that feeling where it left you wanting more which which is great we were happy that everybody was annoyed that we that there weren't more episodes or that we weren't doing a second season i mean i think that's certainly a better place to leave people than feeling like it was too much and um, it was a mix i think it was a mix of you know anna comes from a, a thriller background with her previous show deutschland 83 and in 86 89 the follow-ups and it really was this beautiful romance story that both Anna and Alexa brought to it, but mixed with enough of a kind of thrillery element where I think it was kind of this nice little genre blend that made it feel kind of intimate, but also fast paced and, and fun.
0: Unorthodox really just kind of gripped you throughout. So what was it like as you're watching this thing kind of catch fire? I mean, I remember reading, there was a, big, a great review in the New York Times and then just a few days later the new york times like dipped its beak back again and did more a more di- a different author like a different writer journalist did a, a deeper dive on the show so as you're watching this thing i mean you're pro- you're stuck at home right and you're just kind of watching this unfurl on the internet like what is going through your mind when you're seeing it just build and build and grow and getting and racking up more more acclaim
1: it was incredible. I remember the first thing we wondered was are we going to get reviewed? I mean, of course someone's going to review it, but are we going to get anyone any of the the big critics to review us? And I think the New York Times was the first one, and when we saw that they, they that they even did a review, let alone that it was a good review, right. what we knew it was going to be we, we had a chance of kind of capturing the critical community. But then again, there's a lot of shows that get one of my favorite shows lodge 49 i don't know if you saw that one yeah Terrific. probably my favorite show of the last couple of years got great reviews everywhere but it felt like nobody outside of the critics and tv writers watched it so we still didn't know if it was going to get like kind of capture the popular imagination and then people were tweeting about it and i would hear you know it would come up in oh god my mom's friends would watch it i would hear people here in austria were watching it independent of knowing that I was involved at all. And that was kind of when I knew that we were maybe gonna kind of become something of a water cooler show. And then yeah, yeah. It just kind of kept growing and growing. And a lot of those Netflix shows, when they all, not just Netflix, but any show that, where they all come out at once, instead of, as opposed to week by week, you at best can kind of hope that you capture the conversation for a weekend or maybe a week. And unorthodox, like you said, there was Tiger King, that kind of ran, it was before it ran a little concurrently. And it really felt like for three weeks, maybe a month, Unorthodox kept growing and growing. And it really felt like one of those word of mouth shows, I suppose, aided by the Netflix algorithm that put it in the top tens. And I think that was right around the time, you know what it was? It was right around the time the top ten started, I think. Right, right. And in our little WhatsApp group of the cast and crew of the show, people were sharing screenshots. You know, you can turn on your VPN and send it to different countries or people would send it to us, I guess. It would be like, you know, number two in Germany and then in Austria and France and Canada, I think Argentina, where was the fairly, Saudi Arabia, Wow, Uh, all over the world, the far, I don't know if we got anywhere in in East Asia, that one, I'm not sure, but it really felt like almost every region of the globe was in the top 10 and that people were talking about it. And you know what, frankly, the other aspect, I guess, what TV does so well, it really transports you to a different world even more so than film because you have more hours there, right? TV, Mm -hmm. I think feels more intimate. It's kind of in your home versus going to the theater and you live with these characters in this world for a little bit longer. And for a lot of people, this was their first experience or or first kind of journey into, for some people, I think into any kind of Jewish culture. And for a lot of people into uh, into this particular subculture, I guess you'd call it, of ultra Orthodox Judaism and that also generated some controversy, right? There was a lot of pushback from ultra orthodox groups that you know which i think is justified. People said this is not the this should this is not the typical experience of people in the ultra orthodox communities and i did a lot of podcast interviews everybody did a lot of podcast interviews that were asked to defend that or respond to that and which is which is great. I mean it's good that it generates that kind of conversation, i think. So
0: you're you're never you're never going to be able to please everyone. I think for many viewers the fact that it did have such a global impact it seemed that there was a lot of effort being put into bringing this vibrant world to life. And like you mentioned, a place a uh, a world that not that many people are familiar with or even have had the opportunity to really observe in in any manner. And and I think that the, not only did did the global audience pick up on that, but certainly the critics picked up on that. The critics consensus on Rotten Tomatoes says, unorthodox adapts its source material with extreme care, crafting a series that is at once intimate and urgent, all centered around Shiraha's captivating performance, I'm paraphrasing this from, from Camila Long of the Sunday Times. She said the details of this life are presented with curatorial zeal. So a lot of emphasis being put on the creators, the writer's ability to take to take the this. This was a memoir originally on Orthodox was a memoir that you all adapted we talked about this a little bit on our original podcast but can you can you just kind of go over like what that that adaptation process was like like what what was the what how did you guys bring this world together in such a vibrant manner
1: yeah I mean what what Anna Anna winger the co-creator of the show always liked to say is that she prefers to say it was inspired by the by the memoir rather than adapted. Right. Because as anyone who's seen the show or read the book know, they probably just a cursory YouTube, uh, what else, sorry, Wikipedia search will reveal is that it doesn't really adapt the story of the book. Some of the moments and certainly the spirit of Deborah Feldman, the, the author of the memoir, of her journey is captured in the show. But we, the, the memoir is a very, it's a memoir. It's a very internal process and and Deborah's journey was one that that was really internal. It was something where she felt different and and felt kind of isolated and alone. And it was kind of her journey of learning about the world and about herself. And, you know, that doesn't make for necessarily great television of just an internal monologue. Sure. We tried to kind of capture those feelings in a way that was a little more active and a little more visual, of course. And so everything in Berlin was fictionalized. Esty herself is is fictionalized. She's again, inspired by Deborah, but not based on Deborah. Some characters like Moisha are completely fictionalized or very, very loose amalgamations of the, I would say the the negative response within the Hasidic community to Deborah um, after she left and certainly after she published her memoir. So really it was something where we were so careful about capturing as as authentic, an experience, as authentic a representation of that world as we could, because we were always aware of our responsibility. We knew that this was going to be a lot of people's first and only uh, interaction with the ultra-Orthodox community. On the same ti- at the same time, we have one person's story to tell. And I think a lot of the criticism from the ultra-Orthodox community, again, was that this is not everyone's experience. And sure. what I say is, of course it's not. This is the experience of an outsider, of someone who didn't fit in. And this was always meant to be. We either say one, you know, it was a character journey. If anything, it was a or you could say a failed love story between a tragic love story between SD and Yankee. It was never meant to be this quotidian portrayal of life in the ultra-orthodox community. Right. So we we tried to balance that where we Wanted that representation to be as authentic as possible, and frankly, I I don't think it looks. I mean, you we have a lot of characters who, who love being in that community, right? I think with yeah. Bubby, for example, that community it, it's a bit subtextual, and they talk about they talk about it a bit, but that community really saved her and saved a lot of people after the Holocaust, yeah, um, and gave a lot of people community and meaning again. So that was that was something that because we really wanted to get all the details right or as as accurate as we could it was nice to have the freedom of the Berlin storyline where we had completely fictional characters and the music students where Esty's journey while slightly mirroring Deborah's it is true that Deborah did end up living in Berlin where she lives now the path is incredibly different Deborah did not sneak away in the middle of the night and, and fly to Berlin she had her child she had I think, got divorced, was in the States for a while. It's detailed, actually, in her follow-up book, Exodus. Um, But, yeah, that was, it it was, in a way, feeling that obligation to capture the details right in the world, it was very liberating to not have to track every single moment of Deborah Feldman's real-life journey. And, again, for a television show, it just wouldn't have adapted well. Um, And the other challenge of of the world, I would say, is that you know, there are certain things that are, it is a closed knit community. It is more of a homogenous community than others, but it's a community made up of individuals. I mean, like this is not, the, people are not robots. It's every, there's individual expressions, there's individual choices. Certain people choose to observe certain things that others don't. For example, the A-Roof wire. some neighborhoods, some people do observe the Aruvwire and, and feel like, like that extension of the home where you can go outside in the shabith carrying things. Other people don't uh, follow the air wire. So there's right. a degree right. of personal choice to it where we were making choices about Esty's family. You know, it's that may be how it was for that family, but again, this is not a completely homogenous community.
0: Your show never purported to, Esty's experience never was supposed to be completely representative of this community. It's like you said, it's just one person's experience. And it was inspired by Deborah Feldman's. Uh, well, it's really it's really amazing th- to watch it from the time that you and I spoke, not on the eve of its release, but just several days prior. To then observing as it just kind of grew and did kind of become that water cooler or the water cooler equivalent, the Zoom room, uh, it- like talking. Oh, yeah. I was on a Zoom. I was on a Zoom taking part actually in a in a script reading. And they were people were talking about TV shows and like the two the two shows that were brought up. I didn't bring them up. I was just there playing my playing my part, uh, literally. And it was like the last dance. They're like last dance, blah 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 blah, or unorthodox. And I'm like, I try I tried not to make it about me, but I'm like, I know I know the unorthodox. I know this guy on unorthodox, um, which is really cool. So now that you have been i mean you've been at this for so long right i mean for folks who aren't familiar with the daniel hendler oeuvre the man was an associate producer on the romantics over a decade ago this is a romantic comedy that starred uh some big names like uh katie holmes uh one of my personal favorite actors adam brody is a star of a movie that um that daniel produced and this is again this is when you know, you were a young man when that happened. But now that now that you are an integral part of this big, this, this show that was a huge success, have you what, what's it feel like? And are, are people treating you differently? Are the offers just like pouring in? How has unorthodox affected your career at this time?
1: Yeah, it's, it's been tremendous. I mean, I have to say, and really like, I, I wish I could take more credit for unorthodox, all the credit on the, on the writing side. And for most of it in the show goes to Anna and Alexa. And then of course, Shira and Amit and Jeff Wilbush, the three leads of the show and all the department heads. Um, So for me, I would say, yeah, from a career perspective, it's great having your name on something like that. I mean, it certainly gets people interested. People want to talk to you. People want to it just it opens up a lot more doors uh, from a... But that's something that is kind of out of my control anyway, right? I mean, I would I look at it more from a perspective of my own growth as a writer-producer. Mm. And for me, it was an in, invaluable experience. It was uh, really my first writer-producer gig. I mean, right. it was something where I got to be on set every day. And Anna, and again, all the credit in the world to Anna. She took a chance on me. I like you said. I've been at the. I've been at it and grinding for a while, but wow, I had exactly. never. I, I didn't have any. I think I had one writing credit at that point from Mappa, the previous show, which also came out weirdly after Unorthodox. But I'd written it beforehand. But yeah, she she really took a chance on me, and uh, really grateful for that. Um, and for me, it was something where I learned how a show works. Before that, it was kind of all academic or right. watching documentaries or hearing people talk about it or. Secondhand, and then actually getting to be there and to work with actors and to work with the casting people and to work with the costumer department and the directing department, the camera department, that's really the only way you learn. And I felt like it was like traveling light years, you know, it really helped me. And something I credit Anna for is helping me think beyond the page as a writer. And as even when you're working in television, which is incredibly collaborative on the writing side, when you're in the writer's room it still is this just purely kind of artistic or theoretic document and when you go into production that artistic document becomes this kind of technical document where you have this massive team of people trying to figure out how to realize this thing and, and make it happen and it necessitates a completely different way of thinking and a different way of writing that is uh can sometimes be contrary to the writing experience, which was very internal and theoretical. Um, so for me as a, for my growth, I would say as a writer producer, which is what I want to be, which is what I continue to hopefully develop into. It was, it was the the best experience of my career.
0: That was, I was going to, so I ended up asking what's it feel like to be a huge star, but my other question mm-hmm. was going to be, how has this experience helped you grow as a creative? And it sounds like it's, it's helped, tremendously so back to like being a big star has Steven Spielberg hit banged your line yet has he hit hit you up about adapting something
1: he must must have right I mean I must have missed the call check your
0: check your your DMs your voicemails I don't think he's on Instagram I don't think he's probably hitting you up on there but he did not have well so this was an adaptation just kind of just kind of switching gears a little bit uh, there's a lot of television revivals, revivals have become a really big thing. Uh, and I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on this. The last time we spoke, I was lamenting the fact that sweet bitter, the sweet bitter adaptation of a novel by Stephanie Dandler had just been canceled four months previous. Now we're 16 months later. And there's been no talk of a sweet bitter revival, which I'm, I'm kind of bummed out about. But, well, maybe
1: we started here. This is how you. This is how revivals happen. It's word of mouth, right?
0: That's right. That's right. We need to generate some momentum. Um, I'm kind of just curious, as a creative, like, what are your thoughts on these re- these revivals? I mean, we saw the X Files was re- revived like three times. Yeah. Um, yeah. Veronica Mars was revived uh, on the last on the last time. That, the last time you were on the pot the pod, we discussed Seinfeld a little bit, and apparently like Chandler from Friends tweeted out that they're reviving, like what do you think about this whole, this whole revival phenomena?
1: I generally find them a little disappointing. They kind of, have, their engine seems to be nostalgia. That said, one of my favorite, maybe definitely top three TV shows of the last decade was Twin Peaks, The Return. Right, so that was something that I was ambivalent about before it came out. I'm a huge Twin Peaks fan. I, it's like formative for me as a writer, and it went beyond my expectations. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it did not. It, it did. It was. I think it was. It's my favorite season of Twin Peaks. No. It's, it's, yeah, it's the most Twin Peaksy Twin Peaks. The the highs okay. are higher. The lows are lower. The weirdness is weird. This is
0: what this is where it's like, what about first of all? Thank God they didn't release that one all at once. But like, you're talking about like, not to uh, look, I love David Lynch. I watched the whole thing and I enjoyed it, but there is, they are kind of meandering for a good part of that series.
1: Oh sure, but so did the original Twin Peaks. That's what I mean. The the meanderings were even more meandering.
0: They were. That's they were definitely more meander. they were potentially more meandering than anything that had ever been seen.
1: But it was terrific. I just love it. Every I wish it was eighteen wasn't enough. Thirty six, like thirty six. Yeah.
0: Well, they left it open ended, didn't they? Spoiler alert.
1: Yeah. Always. I'm. I'm hoping. I'm rewatching it now with my girlfriend, who had seen bits and pieces of the original Twin Peaks, and we powered through the bad back half of season two and you get to that climax, that, that finale at the end of season two. And I, I just can't imagine having seen that in 1991 and having to wait 25 years for, for the, the sequel to it. But to me, it lived up to it. But generally, I find these, these remakes, I mean, you know, it's hard not to look at them cynically because you want to stand out. Of course, commercially, you understand why when there's a million shows out there you're, you're looking to find some built-in audience. And if there's a reason to do it, if there's something to say, I certainly felt like with Twin Peaks, I was so curious because David Lynch had changed so much as a filmmaker and there seemed to be so much left in that story to tell that I really enjoyed it. And of course I love the source material, but um, I think it was, I wish I could take credit for this. I think it was Andy Greenwald on the, the watch, one of your, your rival pods, who, uh, who said that a lot of these remakes and revivals, they just kind of end up being about themselves instead of being about something else, instead of having a real concrete reason to to say something about the world, which is what you hope any piece of art does. And I kind of, I agree with them that I think a lot of the remakes creatively feel like they're out of gas, even before they, you know, even before they come out. Um, X-Files, I love the X-Files, we both love the X-Files. I thought there were a few good episodes in there that it felt like those actors together, is just so much fun seeing them together that, I I could keep watching that show until they're in adult diapers, but um, yeah, I mean, you know, some of these things have, I think think a lot of them are just the same thing.
0: Yeah, some of them are overly, they're overly self-referential. They spend too much time on fan service. And when they're done best, I think you're using these characters that we're familiar with that we've come to love to comment or say something new about modern life. Uh, but not a lot of, not, not so many of the shows really do that. So another thing you had mentioned, and I want to get your, your, like, so you're in the, in the, the very distant future, or maybe not so distant future, maybe next week. Cause I don't, I don't know everything that you got going on on your end. You know, I'm not privy to your voicemails. It sounds not even you are, I mean, you got one just sitting there from Steven Spielberg. Yeah, we know and Steven Spielberg's Steve. called me. Who knows who
1: else has called me? I should, that's I right.
0: Should... You got to is that like
1: a, um what's like schrodinger's voicemail i think i can never check it because that's
0: yeah yeah you got you got Steven. as long guy as guy. i don't check
1: them it's always possible there's always a universe where <laughs> Spielberg has called me to to reach out he exactly exactly searched the credits of unorthodox right. and was like oh this guy
0: he's, uh, he heard creative pursuits podcast yeah. netflix so in the time of 19 that's right he's like what's this guy up to all right so you're 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 in charge of your own show Do you, would you like, how would you want to present it to the world in terms of the, basically like the format? Would, do you like the Netflix model of kind of dropping in eight episode season all at once? Or do you like just like once a week, 8 p.m. every Sunday? What, what format, what format do you endorse?
1: Personally, I love week by week. I just love getting a little morsel of it getting to think about it, getting to talk about it, letting it build on itself. All things being equal, I would choose that. I think there are certainly shows for which the Netflix model like dropping all at once works best. And I think Unorthodox is probably one of those. I mean, it was, I, I gotta say before Unorthodox came out, I was totally in the week by week camp. I felt as a creative, it's nicer. You can let it build on itself but there's something about having it come out all at once all over the world and just getting everybody to experience it all together that, I mean, in our case, we were lucky that enough enough people watched it to want to and felt the felt moved enough to want to talk about it. Um, So I, that changed my opinion a little bit and I see the advantage, but, you know, ultimately I I love the idea of the episode. I love the episode as an individual unit of storytelling. I feel that a lot of shows have, kind of gone too far, especially returning shows, not miniseries, but what, what, what have you, multi-season shows that they've gone too far in the serialization direction. I, I love the idea of having a, this little unit of story where you can kind of experiment, right? If you have an episode season and eight episode, eight episode season, you can mix tones, you can try things and you can fail and you can still have a successful season. And I think for something like that, the, the week by week model I find preferable but then again there's also something where you maybe drop three at once to get people talking and then an episode a week it seems like everybody's kind of experimenting with different things right now yeah and it'll be I'll be curious to see the the great thing is now that we're not bound to you know advertising schedules and television hours and whatnot anything is possible right so you can have you're not bound by 60 and 30 minutes like it used to be. You're not necessarily bound by one a week or even all at once. So the cool thing is now that it's just, you can take a chance and see what's right for your show. And, for sure. Everything so, works.
0: Switching gears again, really quickly. I want to get your thoughts on this. When was the last time you went camping?
1: Oh God, I really don't like I love hiking, but I, I like a shower. You're not, a,
0: a, you're not a, yeah. All right, right
1: on. Camping. That's a great, I think it must've been a couple of years ago. I don't even know. Why do you ask?
0: I'm about to go camping. And then I checked the, I'm going to the Sequoia National Forest. And then right before we hopped on this pod, I checked the weather report. And apparently it's like a high of 40 for the next three days. and And it's either actively snowing or they're anticipating snow. It says, if you're going into the forest, you need to have tire chains on your on your wheels, so I didn't know if you had any camping experience in inclement weather, any kind of advice you might want to pass on to your to your buddy before I take on this potentially. What it sounds like, it's turning out, it's it might be a, a bit of a harrowing a harrowing journey here.
1: Yeah, I mean, my advice would be to look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself what you're trying to prove.
0: Yeah, <laughs> right.
1: And then and then Airbnb whatever. Google and then Airbnb. Right. Uh, see what the nearest accommodation is. Right. What, I, and I, that huge might be the band. pivot. Yeah. I'm living in I'm living in a hiker's paradise. My favorite thing is to go do a weekend or overnight hike. If right. if it necessitates for the, the benefit of the amazing hike that you camp out, great. But mm-hmm. if not, I mean you're, you're 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 a successful adult. I think you've you've proven that you have an, various skills and abilities that that make you uh just like a generally an impressive person mm-hmm. why do you, what do you need to camp out for if you don't have to
0: no i i i hear you i do i do kind of want to prove uh something i feel like driving through uh this canyon the these roads that have been carved into this massive national forest when it's snowing and there's you, you know the the roads are wet i will feel like a Kind of like a badass if I'm able to pull this off, but it is looking like there might be an Airbnb pivot here. Um, the my hiking companions are. It's looking like we're going to be moving that way. All right, let's move on to. We haven't been doing this segment every time, but some media diet. I want to know what you've been watching lately, Daniel. You know, uh, Camila Long of the Sunday Times. She commended you and your co-writers on your curatorial zeal. So if I am to survive this camping trip, I'd like you to curate for myself and some listeners, possibly our future streaming queue. What, what, what should be on there?
1: I, sorry, I had to chuckle when you put me at the top of the list that any reviewer would, uh, would reference in, in relation to an orthodox. This is a good question though, because this is the first year I decided I'm keeping track of my media diet, more mm. out, of, out of COVID lockdown boredom than anything. And I feel like in this in this weird post truth post post modern era we're in, I've I've done this year. I'm I'm having my year of Pynchon. I'm reading all the Thomas Pynchon books in order, which is which has been fun and challenging, but mostly fun. And for anyone who hasn't read Pynchon or or knows of Pynchon, he's kind of like the ultimate the writer of the paranoid. And I think it's a. It's an interesting, it's a relevant time more than ever to, to read his stuff. I would recommend The Crying of Lot 49. It's breezy. It's, it's insightful. It's fun. It's, it's also very short by pension standards. It's like 130 pages. It's perfect to burn through on like a couple day camping trip. Um, I have, if you're, if you're bringing your iPad along, I just watched the really fun, uh, interesting documentary, Q Into the Storm right. by Colm back on HBO Max which is about, ostensibly, of course, about the QAnon phenomenon, but really is about the, the people behind 8chan, which is what propagated Q. I don't want to say too much without spoiling anything. Right. But that's been a nice companion to the, to the Pynchon paranoid rabbit hole. On the other end of the spectrum, I really loved How To with John Wilson, another HBO show, six episodes, really great. Rewatching Twin Peaks has been nice. Um, On the sitcom front, on the 30 minute shows, what can I say? I I really, I'm into Search Party. I I got back into it. There was that three year gap between season two and three. I I got back into it and rewatched it. I also enjoyed, I I shared your frustrations a little bit with season four, but in general, I just thought it was a really interesting, um, yeah, mix of tones and, using the 30 minute format in, in kind of new ways and pivoting a lot. Like every season is kind of its own thing. Right. For worse. For worse. Um, was that a
0: revival? It was off for two to three years. Did HBO max revive that one?
1: No, it was a weird quirk. It got re it was a, I think it was one of those kind of sensations when it came out in 2016 right. and it got renewed for season three season two came out less than a year later and it got renewed, but it was kind of a victim of the, the cable into streaming, restructurizing, if that's a word that happened right. around that time, where it was on like TNT or something. Yeah. And then everything got, you know, all of these mega corporations decided to create their own streaming services. Right. And I think they shot season three, they shot season three like two years ago, but two years before it came out or something like that, um. and held it via HBO Max release.
0: right so they it was like part of the the initial hbo max slate i guess Mm -hmm. like so they had content when they first launched it yeah i mean that's interest that's interesting too i mean the whole same day releases that they're doing with the big the big movies like i know they just released this past weekend mortal combat uh which i feel like i probably played with you way back in back in the day uh that oh, was yeah. like a... i'm
1: sure we even saw the movie in the 90s together I bet. yeah
0: yeah that sounds I, re- I remember distinctly going to see batman and robin with you but uh but yeah I'm that
1: sure... was that's a formative. that movie's a, a formative <laughs> 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 yeah um i guess but i mean they have mortal co- i mean you know my taste these now is like a 34 year old father i guess my I think I would rather engage in Mortal Kombat than watch the new movie. But yeah. of course, if it gives people joy, then, then God bless. I'm happy it's out there. And I'm happy at least you guys in the States can um can begin to to gather again and do group activities indoors.
0: Yeah. They're starting to they're starting to open up um, movie theaters and and whatnot. So I was just reading that I guess Mortal Kombat like domestically is pulling in like 20 million dollars, which is kind of kind of crazy because you know for over a year no like n- no movies were pulling in really any kind of any kind of box box office receipts um but sh- shout out to Lewis Tan Lewis Tan I actually he was in an, uh he he was in an acting class I was in a long time ago and now he's the star of Mortal Kombat which is kind of kind of
1: cool to see oh, really? so really yeah, so what is he uh your star is, is rising Daniel and so is so is Lewis
0: Tan's He's not sub zero. I guess he's like, he's the lead character who I think they just created this character. And he's basically like the audience's point of view. And he goes through and like interacts with all of the the you know seminal Mortal Kombat characters like the Sub Zero and the the Scorpion and all the other all of our other um, the whole crew murderous favorites. Yeah, they're just like they're murky, murking, the murking thing- each other.
1: It's really crazy that, I mean, it, it, is, it is what it is. It's been this way since at least Battleship, right? But trying to explain it, my, my Austrian girlfriend who, you know, can name, listen to whatever and name the Mozart symphony, but has no idea what Mortal Kombat is and trying to explain right. to her, that this thing is a video game and showing her the trailer of the video game right. or a commercial for the video game in the nineties and being like, yeah, this is like a movie now.
0: Right.
1: <laughs> She's like, yeah, but what's the video game story about? I was like, "Well, there's there's a tournament, (laughs) fight people, and and, yeah, yeah. that's I guess that's the world we live in. That's that's IP, right? I mean,
0: that's IP, baby. That's what it's all about these days.
1: That's what it's all about." Talk about Um, like, hey, Perry Mason. Did you see? Did you see Perry Mason? That was another show too.
0: No, did you like that one?
1: You know, at first I really grew on me, and I really enjoyed it as its own thing. Right and. The the fun thing, I guess, with IP, I guess it's like a plus and a minus now. It's like, if you have a cool story you want to tell, you can, maybe it's difficult to sell, but find a piece of very, very durable IP of intellectual property and just kind of graft your story onto that, which to me is what the Perry Mason show, the new one felt like. And I thought it was terrific. But at the same time, it's like Perry Mason was a radio serial that was on in the 50s. You know, like who are the who are the diehard Perry Mason fans? Yeah. like this, this has to, I have to see what's the origin. What is the, where does this guy come from? How did he know? How does he get people to confess in the courtroom? Right. And it's kind of, it's kind of a joke, but at the same time, if it lets people tell cool stories, same thing with superhero movies, right? I guess you can do uh, like Noah Hawley's Legion. I really love if, if you can find a reason to get people to pay you a bunch of money to tell a weird or interesting or unique story, then all the- For sure.
0: I and mean, then, and that's the key, though. Like we were talking about the with the revivals. Like as long as you have something to say, you know, go ahead and say it. Even if you, even if you're, you need to like dig up a character from the 1950s to say it. But just make sure that there is something, something that you have to say. Did you see this? What I want to ask you: Did you see this show, Painting with John, on HBO?
1: No, that's it's on my list. It, it oh. gave me a vibe like have the how-to with John Wilson, in a way, these kind right. of meditative, interesting, personal docu-series. Yeah. Uh, no, I really want to, have you seen it?
0: No, but that one's, that one's high up on my list. Last, last one, have you ever read anything by this guy, NASCAR?
1: No- <laughs> oh my God, uh, I'm embarrassed to admit this. One of my sisters sent me that very book about five years ago and told me it was the most amazing. Thing Who, she's Sid- ever read. Was it Sydney? Sydney. Yeah. You know, my sister, she's an intellectual. She's a, like a comparative lit PhD who teaches at Occidental. And she's she brilliant.
0: Can... She's brilliant. I, yeah. you know, I sat in for like a few months, uh, when, when, during one of my quietly employed periods, I was going to a class actually that she was teaching like once or twice a week, just kind of trying to soak up some, some real philosophy and knowledge. Okay. So did you end up reading the, this, my struggle series?
1: Not a page yet, but I will. Now, everything, this, it's weird. It keeps coming around. This thing like keeps, I can't remember what that phenomenon is where you just feel like everyone is referencing the same thing over and over again. But um, I hear about this so often now, increasingly over the last year that I will. I will read it. You by the next hearing. time we talk, by my third appearance in Creative Pursuits, which I expect to also be within the year or, or even sooner, I will have begun it at least.
0: Well, it's definitely going to happen once the next big project gets a rolling, because all of the creative, everyone wants to know what Daniel Hendler is going to do next. What are you going to do next? What can you, what have you been up to? I mean, I'm guessing you haven't just been been uh, hanging out locked down for the last year. You have been on your own Zoom calls, and you're probably not just patting yourselves on the back talking about the show that you, you know, produced. At this point, you were like on set, what, two years ago? So what What is in the works? What can we have to look forward to? What can you tell us?
1: I've got a number of things. One thing in particular uh, that unfortunately, because it's not been officially announced yet and I'm not the one who's allowed to do it, I can't say what it is, but I have a new show that I'm writing with Anna Winger, the co-creator of Unorthodox. And I hope by... God, maybe in the next few months it can it, it can be announced, and I'm sure people can just Google Anna or, or I guess Google me and, and see what that is. Um, all I can tease is that I think it'll it'll scratch the itch of a lot of people who are clamoring for a second season of Unorthodox. Uh, what else do I have going on? I have another show, a, a German language sadcom that mm. we spoke about last year. That due to the odd picadillas of German television which does a lot of these kind of internal co-productions premiered on a streaming service last year when we talked now is on free TV in Germany. So if you're a, a, um, a speaker of uh, any Alemannic dialects, then please put, turn on your VPN, go to ARD Media Tech and look up MAPA, M-A-P-A. And hopefully soon it will also be available on some kind of, national, of international streaming service. Right on. And, God, yeah, last year I just kind of spent the year writing and and working on new stuff. And, like I said, I have the new one with Anna. I have a few others I unfortunately can't talk about yet. One that is now uh, official and has been announced, I'm going to be writing on one of another German language show that's coming out on Disney, uh, the kind of adult version of Disney Plus in Europe, which is called Disney Star, and Mm. I think will be available on Disney Plus in the U.S. It's called Sultan City. It's kind of a really fun crime you know black comedy drama uh head writer Ipek Zubert, who's just like a really amazing uh German writer over here I think that will be out I don't know when but I'm, I'm writing on that show and excited for for that to get going and yeah a lot of fires in the oven if that is an expression but um hopefully the next thing that we can talk about is uh, the new one with Anna
0: I can't wait. A lot of exciting stuff on the horizon. Well, this is an oral medium, but if you are sitting where I'm sitting right now, you would know that it's time to go clean the litter box. Daniel, thank you so much for being the first return guest on Creative Pursuits. We look forward to having you again very soon.
1: Anytime. And can I also tease the, that you and I may have a different podcast coming out in the near future? Is that okay? Or
0: yes, absolutely. Okay. Please. The floor is yours, sir.
1: All right. I don't want to say too much, but just you know, keep your eye on the feed. Do you have you got you gotta have your own feed at some point from all the stuff you're producing? But well, totally. uh, yeah. Keep How your eyes your- peeled,
0: folks. There is obviously my friend Daniel Hendler is a busy Dan. Dan's a busy guy, he's got a lot going on. As am I with cleaning up after these cats, um, ch- really chief among my my things to do. But we're both busy guys, but we have been going back and forth for some time. There is a Google Doc. There's a Google Doc where we've kind of been outlining what this podcast is going to look like, and I think I think a lot of folks are going to be interested in in what we have what we have going on. So keep your eyes peeled for that and that
1: may be what that Steven Spielberg voicemail is about who knows yeah you know we could he it would be, it.
0: yeah he might be wanting to sign on for to, to EP our our pod because I don't think Steven is in the, the podcasting game yet is he
1: I don't I, I don't know but if he if he isn't then this is the one I'm sure he'll want to want to get on
0: should be should be uh, right on all right Daniel this was awesome uh, let's do it again soon
1: sounds good man Take care. Enjoy being vaccinated. Enjoy going to restaurants and movies. We're jealous of you over here in Europe.
0: That's it for this podcast. It was great to have Daniel back. Thank you to our sponsor, Team People. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and tell a friend. Thank you to Hideout Hill for providing the music for this podcast. Check out Hideout Hill on SoundCloud and on Instagram. We will have another episode out really soon, so... Until next time, you've been listening to Creative Pursuits. Take care.